0: And I remember sitting around the table thinking, are we really going to do this? Are we really going to do this? And we're like, yeah, we're going for it. We wanted to spin out and we needed to spin out. And so we did. And we took our 11 employees in our $2 billion of AUM.
1: We often hear about the powerhouses in venture capital, Kleiner Perkins, Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, Benchmark, and their spectacular investments that have shaped the tech world as we know it. But what often goes unspoken is the integral role of limited partners who set the stage for these illustrious firms to thrive, i.e. by first investing into these venture capital firms. And this is why I jumped at the opportunity to sit down with Lisa Edgar when we were together in Finland earlier this year. Lisa has been the driving force behind discovering and supporting many of these Franchises long before they became the billion dollar brand names we know today. This episode is brought to you by Helsinki Partners. If you are an international fund, LP, or growth company looking to expand to Europe, Helsinki Partners provides you free of charge services sponsored by the city of Helsinki. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit and that we can all keep making bill and dollar moves together. Now let's get started. All right, we are here in Helsinki, Finland, and I'm so excited to be joined by another special guest, Lisa Edgar, partner emeritus at Top Tier Capital Partners, one of the trailblazers in our industry. This episode is brought to you by Helsinki Partners. Whether you're looking to set up or expand your company, find quality deal flow and investment opportunities, the best location for your event or Congress, visit or find your new career in Finland's capital, Helsinki, they are your go-to. I'm so glad to be here because of Arctic 15 with. Hat tip to my friend Jan Amri for putting the Finnish ecosystem together and really building all these opportunities for us to connect. Now, let's get started. Lisa, Lisa, I am so excited to see you. Thank you, Sarah. It's great to be here. Let's first start. What brings you to Finland? I mean, Arctic
0: 15, have you always been here uh, joining this conference? I have not. Um, Jan has been trying to get me here for years, Mm. and this was actually my first time At Arctic 15, I did do slush last year, and I have, I I do some advisory work now, and I have a client here in Helsinki, so now I come a little bit more often. And
1: what are your impressions? I mean, you've seen, you've seen it all in many ways, (laughs) through the cycles and all of the above. Yeah. What did you think of the current market environment and how what you saw in the conference? I think that's sort of a barometer of like where people are and where people's heads are at, right?
0: You know, no matter where you go in the world and if you're engaged in the venture community, I think everybody's feeling the same things right now. It's a more difficult market. There's a lot of questions about valuations and where things are going to land and uh, making sure that deals get done and etc. But I think this is a really vibrant community. There's a lot of technology here. There's lot of research and development here. There's a lot of government sponsorship here, which you could say about a number of cities in Europe as well. Therefore, it makes a nice robust community and there's an active seed, you know, first check seed, you know, community here. But then there's Pan-European, you know, these, these companies get started, they go more global. And so there's investors now here that will invest throughout Europe. Mm. What was unexpected uh, that you found out on this trip, I guess, you know, in terms of Finland and the environment or
1: the ecosystem in Europe?
0: Yeah, I think it really is how big and active mm. it is, really. I, the conference was bigger than I expected to be honest. And when I walked in the space, I thought, oh, okay. Well, that brings us very nicely to to what we'll talk about later, leaders you know, in
1: places that you don't expect and what we're actually seeing on the ground when you actually go there, right? The
0: pipeline question, yeah. even for women, people say, oh, there are no women. One of the things I have to admit that was unexpected specifically at Arctic 15 is there was a large contingent of people here from Southeast Asia, specifically Singapore. Mm. And we know there's a lot more family offices there than there had been in the past. But And I think there might have been a relationship between the city of Helsinki bringing some of the people here. But that that was surprising to me. Was a, a great interest area for portfolio diversification and all
1: that. Uh, a lot more to dive into, and we'll do that a little bit more and continue on that trends of what we're seeing: family offices, so for, so forth. But to first get started, yeah. in billion dollar moves fashion, who is Lisa? <laughs> and I hear that you started in hospitality, but then became this trailblazer in investment. How did that happen?
0: Yeah, it's a very kind of serendipitous curvy path to to getting here and and being here in this room with you and being at the conference and a long-time investor in venture capital funds. But when I was younger, I didn't have a, you know, I want to be a doctor. I want to be something. And I love to travel. I love people. And learning about the hospitality industry, I thought, this is perfect for me. This is what I want to do. So I actually went to a community college in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and got an associate degree in that. And I did work in the hospitality business for four or five years and I loved it, but I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do forever.
1: Mm, why is that?
0: I think it was a lot of kind of physical and emotional resource that I had to, I had to have, but not as much intellectual stimulation. Mm. And so it it just wasn't everything that I wanted to do, you know, for the future. And how did this opportunity then arrive for you to swiftly make the move into investment? Yeah, it it was not swift. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is swift. Yeah. I also had a very strong interest when I was growing up in investments, specifically the public stock market, right? Because that's what, I mean, the private markets weren't certainly nearly as big or big at all or as active. So I really loved the public markets and just, you know, had an interest in it in in a way that I would get like a business week subscription when I was just a like teenager. It was very strange when I look back, like I did didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't doing it on purpose. My mm-hmm. family wasn't in that business. But it, it was something that I was interested in. And so when I wanted to leave the hospitality industry, I was in San Francisco. And at that time, there were some very small boutique investment banks that were actually taking the technology companies public, Montgomery Securities, Robertson Stevens, Brecht and Quest, and I wanted to work for one of them. I wanted to be in the stock market and I wanted to be with one of those local boutique banks. Now, that's not what happened. In my career, I ended up getting a job at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, but it kept me interested in finance and in the broader world of investment. So I did eventually get there, but I didn't get there through the path that I originally expected. How did you then, you know, ultimately get to, I guess, Horsley Bridge felt yeah. like you were coming into a career, right? Yes. Yes. When I was at the Federal Reserve Bank, we were building a database of bank holding company structures. I ended up being with a group that was writing SQL code. I mean, you can't make this up. (laughs) And that particular skill set was something that Horsley Bridge was looking for, because even way back at the beginning, they were very keen on having data and using data to help investment decisions. Now, of course, all we talk about is data. Everybody uses it. We buy it. We, you know, use artificial intelligence on top of it and machine learning. But they were kind of unique in that. And because I had this strange database skill set, I was able to, to get a job there. And then I kind of grew my career from then. So I, I was really working with the data and then I moved to be an analyst and then the rest is history. And yeah. what what did you learn? To 1999. Mm. So it was really a long time. They had just moved to San Francisco from Rochester, New York, because most of the investments were in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. So they really needed to be closer to the managers and to the company. So they moved. And I took a job there. And that's really where I cut my teeth and learned the business. And I learned from the data the portfolio companies the financial you know aspects of that then how do you analyze a company? And how do you analyze a fund? And how do you make decisions on when to exit, you know, public stock distributions that come in? What were the three key
1: tenets that stand out to you as, okay, you know, I maybe made some mistakes, let's never do that
0: again? What are the top three learnings or mistakes? So one of them, I remember, you know, Phil Horsley saying is, you have to have patience. And It's so hard to have patience when you're young and you want to just grow and you want to move up and you want things to happen. But in these private markets and in these startup companies, it really does take time. So that was really important to, to learn. Um, Way back then, we learned really about relationships, Mm -hmm. right? And how it really is a relationship business, how important those are. And really, the way you treat others and act in the markets is going to really kind of stick with you, stick with who you are, how people want to work with you. So those are kind of related. That's kind of number two. And then I think the third one is you got to do the work. You really have to do the work to make good investments. And, you know, there's startup companies or early funds where you're looking at past performance and you're making a leap of faith into what markets might um, you know, get started in the future and where the world might go. But those are the things that you really need to do and be able to do to be a good investor. You were,
1: as an analyst, uh, you know, starting your career, and now you hire them and, and you see them around there building their careers. Mm-hmm. Has much changed in how um, the world of analyzing funds
0: and thinking about it, has it changed much? I think so because there's a lot more um, there's a lot more information and data out there but there's a lot more ability to be engaged in the market and not sit in your office and you know there was a lot of sitting in the office answering the phone getting deal flow that way but now everybody's out you're out meeting people you're meeting entrepreneurs there's there's all of these kind of accelerators and startup communities and such so it feels like a totally different business or different way to approach the business than it did early days. I mean, this is the, the thing that a lot of people that were hired were ex-investment bankers or ex-consultants. That's really not the case anymore. And you want people that have worked at startups, that maybe had started their own companies, that, that just have been more hands-on, even from the early days. And, and why do you think that's important in
1: terms of a skill set? I guess the question that was yeah, asked to you was hard right. skill sets and soft skill sets yeah. that makes GP
0: successful. What, do you think there's some element of that? I do because you have to understand and have some empathy for what it's like to be a startup. It's not like analyzing a business in a buyout shop, right? Mm-hmm. Where you you have EBITDA, you have numbers, you have customers. I mean, here, there's so many pivots that take place. Um, the world is so much more global than it ever was before. So you need a lot more diversity in who is part of the team and the skill sets and the backgrounds, etc. So the world looks different too, which is actually a good thing. And what were some of your highlight deals um,
1: in your time in Horsley? I mean, I'm sure there are big names that we now hear of that you were part of as an analyst back in the day.
0: And I think when some of the firms got started or when they really started like being the top firms like a Kleiner Perkins, you know, to be involved in in those firms. But I will tell you some of the top firms that we invested in that would have been considered access plays back in those Horsley Bridge days, there's many of them that don't even exist anymore.
1: Anymore. Hold that thought. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Okay, so I don't actually know, but I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot. And for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit hubspot.com/startups. Or
0: right? So they have not been able to make that transition to the next generation and to just new times in the market. Um, But there was also a number, like a benchmark, right? That is still one of the best firms and has made it through multi generations and multi cycles, etc. And has been able to continue to be a top investor and a top yeah, firm. For yeah. Venture. And
1: I want to talk about that a little bit before we shift to top tier in yeah. building an enduring franchise, which you are yes. arguably be doing right now with some of these firms that don't exist anymore, as you said. Was that surprising to you? Were there uh, some key factors that you know stood out in those who actually did it successfully and not? Like what what makes an enduring franchise yeah. work? I think, first of
0: all, you have to set a goal of building a franchise, right? So that means this firm, this entity is going to last beyond the people that are in the room today, right? And some people decide that's not what they want to do, and that's not the way they're going to build the firm. Investors, institutional investors, generally are looking for a firm that has some continuity that they can stay with, right? There's exceptions to all rules, but that's generally what institutions are looking for. So you think, well, how do I do that? How do I build a brand which is important. I have a name that people know what I stand for and how I um, how I operate in the environment. You know how I treat people, how I do deals, etc. And then. How do I hire people, bring people into a partnership? And as people leave a partnership, good leavers, people that retire, how do they leave the partnership? And how do you make that smooth? How do you make that transparent? And often the ones that have not made it have not done that or done it well at all. That's the majority of why these firms don't make it. But also, sometimes the markets change so fundamentally. Like, I want to do telecom equipment. This new thing comes along Internet. We're not doing any of that. Well, telecom equipment falls apart. You know, all that money during kind of the dot-com bust goes away, and you have nobody on your team or any investments that look promising in the new Internet world. And so your LPs go away. Mm-hmm. And you can't keep your team together, etc. So sometimes it's markets, but most of the time it's it's a people yeah. problem. Interesting. That um, interestingly, Sequoia Benchmark have done a pretty good job.
1: Yeah. What stands out to you in in these firms and how they did it?
0: Well, Sequoia is probably a little bit less clear, at least to me, how they did it. Benchmark did it by equal partnership, bringing people on, people knowing when they're ready to step off. I mean, there were certain things about the way they organized, the way that deals got done that they actually shared with the broader community. And there were people that would use that as we're an equal partnership like Benchmark or we're setting ourselves up like that because they looked at what they did. And I'm not saying that the way they organized is what drove all of their success. It laid the groundwork and made it easy for the right people to come in, for them to get the right people to come in, because they were very talented investors, right? You would never not give them that credit, but it just makes it so much easier. When it's kind of known and it feels equal and everybody feels trusted and respected and, you know, the economics are shared the way you feel is is yeah. So, so thinking equal. basically in terms of the carry split
1: and, and yeah. how, how that's distributed yeah. across the firm. Ah, interesting. So unlike, I mean, in some firms, and we see that today, uh, unlike some firms where it feels very, oh, this is my deal, proprietary benchmark essentially. Were they one of the first few pioneers who said everybody gets a slice of the pie in some way?
0: I don't think they were the first, but they were vocal. It was very clear when they set up, this is the way we're going to set up, and, and it it hasn't changed. Well, this then inspired you, you know, as you continued
1: to work with firms and enjoyed it, um, inspired to go out on your own after 10 years. Tell us a little bit about that decision-making. Why and how? Yeah. So
0: what What really happened (laughs) is that when I left um, Horsley Bridge, I spent a small couple years at W.R. Hambrecht. So remember I mentioned Hambrecht and Quist there. This was Bill Hambrecht's um, reincarnation of a a boutique bank. Um, And then I went to work for Paul Capital. Top tier spun out of Paul Capital. And we spun out of there. We were the venture capital fund of funds inside a broader organization that did secondaries, healthcare royalties, and a venture fund of funds. There came a time for various reasons that we wanted to spin out and we needed to spin out. And so we did. And we took our 11 employees in our two billion of AUM and walked down the street in San Francisco. And as my partner, um, David York said, we repotted ourselves in in the um, Transamerica Pyramid in San Francisco. We rebranded with a new name. We had new investors and that was the beginning of top tier. Yeah, and
1: and tell us a little bit. I mean, framing for the audience here, um, many who are LPs and GPs, yeah. but maybe have not lived the cycles that you have. Uh-huh. Where was Paul Capital in the construct of things? I mean, two billion AUM—that was a lot to start with, arguably.
0: Yeah, it was a lot, but they had secondary funds and pretty large secondary funds. So the firm had more than two billion of AUM under management. So we were a, a, sm- like a small of piece of a broader platform. But it is it is true, and that's why I, I say this because. I consider myself a co-founder. I was one of the original partners. I wrote a check into the organization in order to get it started, but we were lucky. There were 11 of us and we had some AUM under management, which meant we had investors already. Now, keeping those investors as you spin out and as you change your kind of LLC is tricky, right? And setting up that LLC correctly is also tricky. Getting the right investors, um, getting the right terms of those that investment, having the kind of founders and the partners own enough of that organization that there's they are incentivized to move forward with it and you know consider it their that they're a founder right yeah. and they want to grow this thing and have a lasting organization for the future and the partners that spun out we really had that vision we wanted to do that and um, I want to talk about the name for a second yeah, in so many ways <laughs> it's just brilliant yeah. <laughs> because now when anybody says top tier they're talking about top tier as far as a top core tower top performer it was brilliant branding and i remember sitting around the table thinking are we really going to do this are we really going to do this and we're like yeah we're going for it and it's a name that we have to live up to right we are top tier right which means not only the performance which is you know foremost but it's also who we are how we act the reputation we're building the people we're hiring etc um so it was it was big and bold. And I love that we d- were big and bold at the beginning.
1: I guess I, I learned from folks like you, but unintentionally, I mean, we started the Billion Dollar Fund for Women. Thank and you. when you have Billion and woman, you know, yeah. eyes raised, but you yeah. have to live up to it, right? Yes. You have to go beyond the Billion, which is what That's we're doing right. right now. So fascinating. Yeah. So new chapter, um, repotting yourself. How did you then go on to build a firm? Um, How did you think
0: about it? What was the strategy? We did the thesis
1: change over the years. Tell us a little bit about this chapter.
0: Yeah, it's not easy. Um, And there were a lot of ups and downs. There was a lot of commitment. I tell people it's a 24-7 business, and you really just have to have the passion about what you're doing. When we left Paul Capital, we um, had a relationship with the Bank of Ireland. And there was someone that was working with the Bank of Ireland that was a behavioral psychologist. And they were like, you should use this person him and help you as you think about starting your organization and it was from what's your mission statement what is your what are your goals like some of that basic stuff but we did it from the beginning and we had this kind of mantra at top tier it was we called it letter l-t-t-r leadership trust transparency and respect and We tried to really embrace that and ingrain it inside the culture in a way that all the team understood what that meant and what it looked like. And so like every quarter we'd pick one of them and then we'd have the culture committee. We literally had a culture committee. And this was before um, like the Me Too movement right. when now it was like, okay, everybody better really think about their culture. Um, we had a culture committee and you'd give awards like for who was the best leader for this quarter. And so it was like, what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. So we'd show videos or have some discussion about what a good leader looks like. And it was just something that I think brought us together outside side of, you know, this is the way we do our diligence and this is the way we operate and this is the way, you know, we invest to this is the way we're building the
1: firm. And tell us a little bit of spinning off a new entity. Were you able to bring sort of your track records with you? Were you able to lean on Paul Capital in some way to be able to have this
0: start um, a little bit easier? We still used some of the back office, you know, in the early days when we spun out, but we were able to take all of our clients, all of our current LPs, all of our current employees, and the track record. So that that was much easier than people who can't do that agenda. and really start yeah. from the beginning because you know people always want to see what's your body of work mm-hmm. and you know I work with a lot of emerging managers try to say okay what have you done and what is the investment and how do you package that and present that in such a way that shows the quality of your work and you have to get creative about that but yes we were lucky in that we had that.
1: When you're thinking about building infrastructure for the LPs that are running front of funds yeah. um what what were some of your mistakes in the early days in how you built the firm was there anything that you would have done differently
0: I think recognizing back office and you know do you outsource do you do it in house how how do you work with your providers if you're going to do it that way so that was a big question you know how we were going to do that and whether it was going to be robust enough to satisfy what we were trying to do going back to setting up the ownership and the structure correctly from the beginning is something that can really trip people up as well um hiring is always one of the important things like are you hiring for a particular position or are you hiring someone because you just think they have great skill sets etc so i think we've we had some missteps on hiring i think everybody does that until you really get it right um and then the the notion, even in a fund of funds, I mean, it's always be selling, always be yeah. closing. Oh, you know, you were, we were always fundraising and that was important to really kind of understand that, that the capital drove the ability to make the investments. Then you had to have the performance. Then you had the capital again and understanding that, but not necessarily having the fundraising drive or overpower the importance of the investments. So keeping your eyes on the ball,
1: yeah. uh, talking to us about, you know, when you were, I guess, putting the proposal together that this was going to be a separate entity, what was the investment thesis on how you would achieve top tier performance?
0: We always were a bit of an access focus, name brand focused venture fund of funds and top tier still is today. Therefore, there's a core portfolio of kind of top performing, hard to access. Then you're always building your farm team because what you learned, I said this before, is not everyone makes it through every cycle. People lose their way. Sometimes they get too big. I mean, there's various reasons why you don't necessarily re-up forever with um, all of your fund managers. So you always have to have a group of managers that are coming up and... Yeah. Um, in the in the field, going deep into the investment side of things. What was
1: your strategy? How do you think about portfolio diversification? Did you start at the get-go with the strategy
0: that we see today, or has that evolved over time? It has evolved, mm-hmm. and it continues to evolve with the markets and as yeah. t- things change. I mean, we're not timing the markets, but you know, how much international? Are we in Europe or not? Yeah. Etc. That has changed over time. We always did tech. We always did healthcare. There were some fund of funds that didn't invest in healthcare funds or biotech funds. We always did. We had a focus on early stage venture where the managers own a lot of the companies and that continued. But we also wanted to always have the emerging managers and maybe some late stage managers. And then because of our roots at Paul Capital, we really knew the secondary business. We added secondaries to the funds, especially after the global financial crisis, to help smooth the cash flows. And what was happening after the um, global financial crisis is a lot of investors just were really seeking the ability to always have some liquidity because they couldn't invest and go through this long J curve. They wanted to see some early liquidity. So we created portfolios with secondaries and co-investments that created early liquidity for investors so that they could get some DPI and get some cash back. And then the early stage fund investments would really deliver in the future of the fund life, of the fund of funds life. Did you have a vision
1: of the specific technology that these funds were investing into? Did you have that thesis at the granular level?
0: Not really. Only because it ends up that the best managers kind of look, that's what they do. That's what venture capitalists do. They, They look into the future they go where the puck is going as we say the old hockey you know terminology so we thought by investing in the best we would get into these markets, and that was true. Whether that be Web3, whether that be B2B software, all of this AI, you know, people move where they see the world going, especially the big, well-established, very successful players. Now, does that mean around the edges, we might've said we want maybe more of this or less than this? Absolutely. We had done that, but sometimes it's we don't want more of it. We're going to take what the market's given us, but we're not going to double down into something like clean tech, for example. In the first iteration, we didn't double down on that. It ended up being a smart move (laughs) and then internationally as well. We started investing in China and in Asia in 2006, 2008 timeframe. There were a lot of US LPs that started investing in those global markets. They looked like they could have provided some more multiple than what we were seeing in the US. And that was true for a period of time. And every time we raise a new fund, we have that discussion. What do we want this to look like? What is our portfolio construction? So two questions I want to ask from that.
1: One is portfolio construction. This is ultimately what makes or break any investment entity, right? How do you think about re-ups? Did you have, you know, a a set criteria of, okay, if this checks
0: out, you know, a whole list, we will re-up. How do you think about all of that to really drive alpha here? Some of it was quantitative. Some of it was qualitative. So one of the things we did, if you think of a fund of funds, it's a discrete portfolio. What we did was actually Take the performance, so we're talking about net IRR, TVPI, DPI. So that's you know total value to paid in, distributed value to paid in, and we would sort, rank all the funds that were in that particular discrete portfolio. So you could see who's in the fourth quartile and who's in the third quartile, and so. And we'd watch that move. We watch these managers move over time. I mean, sometimes you do go into a big J curve because you're an early stage manager, you're doing seed, you're t- you calling management fee, and we. Understood that, right? We were sophisticated investors and understood. Early days, you can't really look at these quartiles and make any decisions that you're going to re up or not re up. Then that was the there was the qualitative piece on top of that, right? Is the team stuck together? Are they doing what they said they're going to do? Do they have good deal flow? Are we hearing good things about them? Are they co investing with the best people? One of the things though that happened over time as we got to be a larger organization with a larger team, we had a lot more inputs of people that I'm working with these managers, you're working with these. And I was like, I like my people because they're doing this. So there was a lot more discussion around those Monday investment team meetings as we were really trying to um, do deep and thorough and thoughtful analysis on who we thought could perform in the next several years as we were you know making those re-up decisions. How do you
1: decide there? I mean, there's a lot of ego in play. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also a lot of unknowns, right, for a long period of time. I mean, the challenge with Fund of Funds, it's, you know, 10 plus 2 type structures where you're really in the long-term patience game, as you say. How do you think about shifting strategy or portfolio construction when there's so much uncertainty there?
0: Yeah, I think, which is the reason why Fund of Funds and those that have been in the business for a long time are really great investment vehicles for people that either want um, help with the venture allocation, want to start with a, a fund of funds as venture allocation to learn because after so many decades and the pattern recognition, you could start understanding and knowing the questions to ask, knowing certain red flags that you might see inside organizations. So for example, there was a fund that we invested in and um, they started with a small portfolio that they brought in. It was one of the emerging managers. This particular fund, that nothing was happening. It was like, something's wrong. Something's wrong. That red flag goes up. We call it, you know, we often call it the spidey sense. It's like something's going on. So when you look at your, I guess, best performers and um, maybe we won't name names here, but the lesser quartile, right? The lower quartile. What stands up? There's no silver bullet. There's no secret sauce. How do you become a good investor in startup companies? I mean, after a while, people have it or they don't. So you don't don't think it can be learned. You either have it or you don't. I think it's a mentoring business on how to look for things and maybe how to, to be a good board member and such. Some of it is kind of innate. And I see that in people. You just get some people who get it, and we, we use this term good stock picker. And then some people aren't. And I think you know, like VCs will say this about portfolio companies. They don't change the management early enough. And I think sometimes when somebody's really not making it and it doesn't look like their their companies are really gonna be the outliers it's hard one of the questions that funds get asked a
1: lot and as i'm sure you you have is is it worth the double year of fees you know it's mm-hmm. the 110 and then the 220 and in the end yeah. you're paying a lot uh and arguably 20 years later, the market has become a little bit more open where family offices are doing it direct.
0: Does the business model still work? So, not all fund of funds are one in 10. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing. Um, I, as I said, there is a place in the market for fund of funds for sure. Um, I'm surprised today how many new fund of funds are getting started because it's not an easy business because of in some ways because of this question. People don't like the fee-on-fee, fee, and I understand that. In the end, if you're delivering the returns that the investor needs for this part of their portfolio, which we were, as even as a fund of funds at top tier, then it is worth it. Often people start with a fund of funds to learn to start building the portfolio as well, and then they may might make their own individual bets into funds directly. Um, So I do think there's still a place for it. There's also maybe certain geographies that are hard to access, maybe a fund of funds that's going to focus on climate or a fund of funds that's going to focus on building a portfolio of of women-led VCs. So there are areas of the market more niche focused. Maybe they're going to do small micro funds, right? That's hard because if you're a large investor, but you want some micro funds in your portfolio, you're not going to make investments in little $25 million funds. It's just not worth it to you, but you might want to use a fund of funds for that. So I think mm-hmm. there are places for it. There's also some large investors that they need to, to make a hundred million dollar commitment. So it's better for them to outsource their venture allocation to a fund of funds manager and then do their direct investing in maybe large buyouts and infrastructure and other things like that themselves with yeah. their own team.
1: So I'm curious, you mentioned a, a trend there where it becomes a, a starter play, right? But eventually uh, they know enough from you. Are you sort of cannibalizing your own LPs in some way? And how, how do you handle that? I'm sure that happened to you a lot throughout the 20 years.
0: Yeah, it did. And actually, we were okay with it. As long as, of course, we can continue to find new LPs, which we had been. But we thought if that's what somebody's strategy was, and we were both clear up front, then that was okay. That was okay with us. And you have to, of course, make the economics work. You know, as they drop off and bring in new ones and all yeah. that. And did yeah. you continue to co invest with those LP investors as well? We called each other for diligence. Mm. Yeah. The the one thing about fund of funds though is that often there are investors out there that want to see your list because they really want to do it themselves, because they feel like they can do it themselves. Often they really can't do it themselves because some of those names on that list really are access plays and, and will always be access plays. But that was frustrating.
1: Yeah, I mean, we see oh, yeah. it today in yeah, many ways. F- so tell us about access plays here. I mean, that was a big part and, and you've mentioned it three times here. I think that's a big part of Top Tier's uh, secret sauce. How do you get into the best funds and what were, I guess, your really key learnings and key mistakes in, in really doing
0: this work? It really really is relationship building and being a good partner to the GP, getting to know them, being somebody that they could trust and count on, um, being active in the ecosystem. That was really the way we did it. Sometimes we, Phil Paul, who was the founder of Paul Capital, who had relationships with the founders of some of these name brand firms. So we went that way. Um, and when you think about relationships, which is probably also a word I've used many times, we had, we encouraged our team especially the investment team, to build relationships in these venture organizations with their peers. So for example, the analysts and associates should be getting to know the analysts and associates, the principals and VPs, the same thing, the partners, because first of all, people mature. And the next thing you know, the analysts are all running the firm. They're making the decisions, right? So we also tried to build deeper relationships. So there wasn't just one person at their firm and one person at our firm. You have
1: some pretty exciting names in your portfolio that have become true legends in the industry. Was there anything uh, that comes to mind that was really a difficult deal that somehow it broke through and that was
0: like a great moment for you? We've had some partners join, right? And they had a list of names that they had relationships with. So being able to convert, you know, person to person is always something that you're not sure is going to happen. And we've seen that happen personally. And what's kind of near and dear to my heart is some of these, we call them alpha managers, But the newer, smaller emerging funds and watching some of them really become successful Mm. and then being oversubscribed themselves, even though they're still small emerging managers, but, you know, not be able to take all the capital that wants to come in those funds. And I think for me, that has been the most rewarding part of, I think, my journey and why even today I focus more on helping newer, smaller teams that I think have the ability to build something really special, especially folks that, are, that don't look like everyone else in the industry. And what was the hardest thing that you've had to do in the 20 years of building uh, the firm? A change in GPs and key man tripping and things happening they're very difficult, they're very emotional sadly we had to do it more than once it's a lot of work, it's getting LPs and you know consensus around that, that's why you do so much work on the team and the team dynamics, what really is going on and whether or not the partnership is truly a partnership that can withstand not only the good times but also the bad times, kind of like today's market. Yeah and, and that's a great Segue. Let's talk a little bit about markets. How
1: are you thinking about the shaky markets here?
0: Everybody knew it was coming, right? It was a long, long bull market in venture capital, and now I think watching valuations, I don't think they've all settled yet. Fundraising is is quite difficult. This is where the experience is really going to matter because we are in that market. I know the Nasdaq is is up a bit. Nvidia is leading the way, of course, but it's still a difficult market. And as people talk about, there are alternatives now with interest rates being not zero. Investors have options where it was hard to find any type of growth or any type of return in the in markets other than privates and some publics. But now there's fixed income and credit in different places that people are starting to spend a little bit more time with. And what do you think needs to change in, in venture? And will this market be a good thing or a bad thing in changing things in venture? One of the things about venture and the success of venture, it's changed our worlds, made things easier, made us more connected, I think gave a lot of people opportunities that they wouldn't have had, you know, without all the venture kind of engine, but it's been done without all the guardrails mm. that needed to probably take place. And now the discussions around AI, where I'm not frightened by AI and I'm not a doomsday person, mm. but I am hopeful because it is a big trend. There's a lot of investing happening in that space that there'll be a lot more thoughtfulness about the outcomes and what the repercussions of some of that. I think there needs to be the more investors, you know, globally, just opening it up and having more kind of institutional investors. Like there's a lot in the U.S., but there's not really a lot in Europe. For example, there's a lot of government investors, but not necessarily a lot of institutional investors, a lot more diversity in who is getting the money, whether that's the fund managers or the entrepreneurs. So I think all of those things, three things really need to change to make it just a better place. And you were in Silicon Valley um,
1: for a long time. Time as mm-hmm. well, and that's where you mentioned this top of the interview. Uh, the Me Too movement happened, mm-hmm. and Venture was very much caught up in that as an LP. How do you think about that in ensuring that GPs are being ethical in the way that they conduct themselves?
0: The Me Too movement gave a lot of LPs the confidence to ask the questions that they wanted to ask, but didn't feel they had the power to ask, especially women LPs. And these questions were being asked. I mean, a number of women in private equity networks, I know you are too. There's some great ones. I have some of my best friends that are from there. And those questions were being asked and we were trying to help each other, but I I think it gave us the confidence and the space to do that. It was horrible what happened to to women and that had been going on. In some ways, the spotlight that was shown on it was just so necessary and so important. So many groups kind of started or really kind of came in in, with force. Even the NVCA, the National Venture Capital Association, came in um, with real solutions, real workshops, real discussions. And it still exists, right? It wasn't like it's a moment of time. Okay, that's over. We're moving on. So that's what, and it needs to continue, right? And what the work you're doing and the work that I I help people like The Bridge that we talked about, that is so important to to continue to have these organizations.
1: Hold that thought. My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Shanpuri, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My First Million features amazing guests like Alex Sofia Sophia Amoruso, Hassan Minaj, sharing their secrets for how they made their first million and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunities. An episode I really liked? A recent one on how Sam's mother-in-law built a million-dollar Etsy business out of Nothing, and I believe it involves hellos. So listen to my first million wherever you get your podcasts. That are working, you know, to change that. Do you think LPs could be more vocal and in, in the the way
0: they conduct themselves? What needs to change among LPs in some of this? Where it was like, well, the LPs should not. It's their problem because they're not making sure there's female GPs and they're not doing this and that. And everybody in the end has a fiduciary responsibility for returns. That That's the majority of investors. That is the A number one like goal. Now, these things are not mutually exclusive, right? And we all know that too. But it wasn't like you could just flip the switch because in some ways there wasn't enough resource, there wasn't enough information, data, et cetera, to people people to really know what was available out there because a lot of these more diverse managers and women didn't really have a voice, right? And so these platforms elevated their voice. And then there was a lot of investors looking to make sure they were getting exposure and investing. Some of them had specific allocations. Some organizations were set up to only invest in, in more diverse managers, and otherwise, I think people just kept asking the question. So everyone felt compelled that they had to do something. And I shouldn't say everyone because that's, that's not fair. Yeah. A lot of people, and certainly what I would say, the top managers were compelled to do something. One of the things that you brought up was there needs to be experience.
1: Experience is so valuable at this time. But of yeah. course, women and people of color don't have traditional experience. They, ha- they have a more circuitous journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't look like the typical pattern of success. How do you address
0: that? And how are LPs doing in, in this regard? I think... I think a lot of these, some internships and mentoring programs, and and I'm talking formal internships and mentoring programs, can really make a dent and bring people into the organization. Because you're right; I mean, there's a a lot of people don't even know that the industry exists, right? And reaching out into whether it's colleges, universities, even going younger into different schools, whether it's high schools, and some are even going down to the elementary school level to just show that people. People like you and me are in this industry and have made full careers in this industry and are willing to be mentors.
1: Well, Lisa, so many more questions I could ask, and then we'll continue in drinks later, perhaps. Uh, but we'll transition now to your most recent chapter, final move to Portugal to look into Europe, working with Tom Open Ocean. What does this next chapter look like for you?
0: So I moved to London in 2019 as Top Tier created a office there and um focused more on Europe and raised a um, European-focused venture capital fund of funds, doing primary, secondaries, and co-investments, very similar to what the firm had been doing all along. And I just loved it. I loved it. There are so many talented people. There were unicorns being created. There were people thinking about entrepreneurship in a whole different way. There were educational platforms and programs and accelerators. There was global thinking. And I just thought I could be here at a time that looks like Silicon Valley did years ago and participate or add some little touch of wisdom to how to create a lasting organization a lasting industry to what are some of the pitfalls some of the learnings etc and that's really what I I do today at partner emeritus top tier no day-to-day activity strategic advisor and you mentioned you know working with Tom and Katya and Patrick at open ocean you know they want to build a better firm they have a firm they have some funds they have some great investments like how what does world class look like from an LP point of view I bring the LP hat to people I actually help advise and a few other um GPs and some investors. And it really is from that LP point of view to try to kind of up the game a little bit because some of the things we heard about Europe was, okay, lower prices, there really are companies, this and that. Yeah, but it's Europe and they take six-week vacations. They're not working like the Americans and such. And how do you find that happy medium between the American way and the European way and blend that together to make a very successful firm and, you know, investment. Very exciting and very exciting
1: to see, you know, that this next chapter in beautiful Europe and hope to see more of you. Final section, which is the fireside questions. Very quick, you know, first thing that comes to mind for Lisa
0: Edgar. All All right. right. Uh, Your guilty pleasure. My guilty pleasure. It right now is following my daughter around Chicago into some of the coolest art galleries and music venues and such she's a she's a arts critic and i just love it she calls me up and goes i have a ticket to this or i'm doing this and it's just so much fun a habit you've picked up that has changed your life yoga i picked it up a long time ago yes. and it really makes a difference i do it every day have my yoga mat with me everywhere i go Great. yes i do what would you tell your younger self but what i tell my i i think it might have come out a little bit. There's a lot of serendipity in my life. It's turned out fine. I still love serendipity. Have more. I wish I would have had more of a plan, um, which is a weird thing because I think I tell people today, you can't plan everything. Yeah. You can't plan everything. But I I am very much, a you know, a serendipitous, you know, opportunistic person. And I, I wish I would have had a little bit more focus. What's it's, your biggest insecurity still? I think it's Am I focused on the right thing? And am I making am I am I making a difference? Like some people come up to me sometime and said, "I heard you say this," or you said this to me, and I think, really, you know, I mean, has, that's that's really made a difference and changed? And I, that wisdom was actually helpful. I, I I love that. And then that brings me to my next question, the final one. Uh, my next
1: guest uh, will be Brad Feld uh, from Foundry, okay. TechStars, and all that. Yeah. What would
0: be your billion-dollar question to him? Ah, Brad. No, Brad. Okay. Um, this isn't really an investing question, but I think it's an interesting question because Brad knows how to like do his investing and also take care of himself and mental health. That's an important thing to him. What was a time where he had the time to kind of sit and linger somewhere and what happened that was very unexpected whether it be a person or an Mm. event or something did he meet somebody did something happen where instead of moving on which were all in motion did he sit ah well I'm so tempted I have to ask you that one question (laughs) what was that for you it's been a recent learning for me (laughs) that you never know what who who you're gonna meet so for me it was my current partner I was in a guitar shop in London what didn't have anything else to do. I just moved to London and he came in and we just sat there with the owners of this guitar shop. But I had done that another time and it was a, a similar, just like an amazing afternoon because normally you you do your bit you know buy your whatever you're buying or look at whatever and then you move on but if you just sit sometimes and just let the unexpected happen magic happens yeah magic happens and this was the magic that
1: happened because i showed up and i saw you and i was like wow yeah we should do it we should do it and let's take this opportunity in beautiful finland well lisa this was such a pleasure thank you so much for your time your insights and we're so excited for your next chapter thank you And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Villain Dollar Moves.